On January 28, 1766, it was announced that a man named William Romaine would become the new pastor of Blackfriars Church in London. And Romaine wrote to his sister that day saying, This is to me an amazing event, that such a one should be made a pastor, one that is plagued to death with his own heart, to make him a watchman over others. What is the Lord doing? With the utmost abhorrence of myself and of my being unfit to be minister of a great parish in the midst of this great city, I have been forced to leave it to the Lord. I give you notice to pray your master and my master to fit me for this work. Beg of him to help me to exalt him and to keep me down. And he wrote to another friend on the same occasion. He said, My head hangs down upon the occasion through the awful apprehensions which I ever had of the care of souls. I am frightened to think of watching over two or three thousand when it is work enough to watch over one. The plague of my own heart almost wearies me to death. What can I do with such a vast number? Now, in Romaine's assessment, the pastoral responsibility was quite serious. He was right. It is a very serious responsibility to care for the church of God and to keep watch over souls as one who will one day give an account to the Lord. What kind of a man should be a pastor? What characteristics should he embody? This is the question that Paul answers for us this morning in our text, which is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me there. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, as we consider this passage, first of all, let's look at the terminology that Paul uses. Paul had left Titus there on the island of Crete to set in order what remained. And part of that work was the building up of churches in the various cities on the island of Crete. And an important part of that work of building up these churches was the appointing or ordaining of elders in these churches. And he refers to the office as that of an elder in verse 5, and then as a synonym in verse 7, he uses the word overseer. Now, in the past, this word that's translated here as overseer was uh, translated as bishop, and so if you're using the King James Version, uh, it will show up as bishop. But most modern translations use the word overseer. And so in its New Testament usage, this term for the pastoral office, overseer slash bishop, is equivalent to the word elder. Paul uses the words interchangeably. We see that here in Titus 1, and we see the same thing in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, Paul was in Miletus, and he sent for the elders of Ephesus so that they would come out to him so that he could give them some parting words. And he addressed these elders and said to them in Acts 20, 28, Be on your guard for yourselves 
and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so he's talking to elders, and he says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so when Paul is talking about overseers, he's talking about elders and vice versa. He's talking about those who are the rightful teachers and those who exercise authority in the church. And so then Paul calls Titus here to get things in order in these areas that have recently been evangelized and these areas where churches have been planted. And part of this is the ordaining of elders. And we see a similar pattern in Acts chapter 14, what we commonly know as the first missionary journey. Paul had preached the gospel in Pisidian Antioch and in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And after they finished their work in Derbe, then they, they turned around and they went back to Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. And we find the nature of their work on that return trip described for us in Acts 14, 22, and 23. We find that they strengthened the, the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to continue in the faith. They appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, and they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. So we see this, this similar pattern. The churches were planted, and uh, right away, not... Absolutely the first thing out, but right away, elders were appointed for these churches. And we learned from this pattern that proper order within the church is essential for the spiritual life of the Christian. Paul did not simply leave these evangelized areas to defend for themselves as Christians. Instead, churches were planted. This is for the, the good of believers. As we find in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. This is where believers are fed and nourished. Christian books and recorded sermons are great and can be a great blessing, but ultimately they're no substitute for the local, particular gathering of Christ's people, under, ultimately under Christ's authority, and then in a delegated manner under the authority of biblically qualified elders. And thus it is that we read of the role of pastors and teachers in the economy of building up the saints in Ephesians 4, 11 and following. We read that Christ gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then what's the result? He says, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects to him who is the head, even Christ. And so Christ has given pastors and teachers to his church as a gift so that the church would be built up and grow to maturity and not be carried about by every wind of doctrine. The church is where this kind of discipleship and growth takes place. And then Christ's church is to be led and taught by qualified men. So who are these men? What characteristics do they embody? Well, Paul tells us here in verses 6 through 9. This passage concerning the requirements for the office of, of elder is parallel to that of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Some of the vocabulary used in the two passages is identical. Some of the vocabulary is different. But either way, it is very clear that both lists are getting at the same thing. At the end of the day, a man who meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 will meet the qualifications of Titus 1 and vice versa. So Paul begins the qualifications with the broadest one first. And he begins the, the same way in 1 Timothy 3. It's not the same exact word, but certainly the same concept. 
and that is that an elder must be above reproach. This is to say that an overseer in the church must live in such a way that no one can reasonably charge him with great and blatant inconsistency in regard to his Christian walk. And some of the specifics of this are spelled out below in the passage. This first requirement to be above reproach is a catch-all category that includes everything else that is specifically follows and everything else that's not specifically mentioned. And it is a way of saying that he must be an exemplary Christian man. This is not a call for perfection because elders are still sinners. Jim and I and Jamie, as, uh, as an elder in training, we are all still sinners. Augustine helpfully put it this way. He says, And so the Apostle Paul, when he determined on the ordination of either elders or deacons or whoever was to be ordained to the superintendents of the church, says not, if anyone is without sin. For had he said so, everyone would be rejected as unfit, none would be ordained. And that is, that's true. If he had said, if anybody is without sin, let him be an overseer, there would be no overseers in the church. And after mention of that general catch-all category, that an overseer is to be above reproach, then come the specifics. Now, most of the specifics are in regard to the maturity and discipline that are required of elders, though the requirements of Hospitality and the ability to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict speak to the overseer's ability and willingness to minister to others. Most of these are about maturity. Some of them are about his ability and willingness to minister to others. And barring the requirement that elders are to be able to to teach and able to refute false doctrine, the characteristics mentioned here are really supposed to be characteristics of all believers. All believers should embody these things to to some degree. All believers are not required to be able to teach and to refute. All believers should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in them, though. But other than that, all believers should, uh, to some degree, match these characteristics. And so, obviously, the passage, first and foremost, is speaking to elders. But don't just check out and say, well, I'm not an elder, so it doesn't, doesn't apply to me. Well, look, look at these requirements and think about what the Lord requires of you as well. And so, first, in this list of specifics, we're told that an elder must be the husband of one wife. This is not a requirement that an overseer must be married, but rather the requirement that an overseer must be faithful in the realm of sexuality and marriage. This means, for one, that an overseer must not be a polygamist or a man who has a concubine. Polygamy uh, was, at that time, in the first century, still in use among the Jews. And it also means that an overseer must be faithful to his marriage vows. Being a husband of one wife implies that he must be faithful to the wife that he has, neither committing adultery against her nor divorcing her on unbiblical grounds and marrying another woman. An overseer must be faithful in the, this area of marriage and sexuality and set a good example for others. And closely connected with this is the management of his family, which immediately follows. Paul says, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now this, this phrase here, having children who believe, has been the subject of some debate as to ascertain exactly what this requirement is. Modern translations like the New American Standard, English Standard, and the NIV translate the phrase, 
uh, in, this, in this way that, uh, that I have just read, children who believe, and the implication of that translation seems to imply that the children of elders must be Christians. Now, the King James Version and uh, one modern version that I looked at, the Holman Christian Standard, translated the phrase as having faithful children. Now, having faithful children could mean essentially having children who are under control, Broadly speaking, that the children are above reproach themselves. The Bible says in the Proverbs that even a child is known by his actions. And let's say this at the start, that either translation is possible. Having children who believe or having faithful children. Either, either translation is possible. I would lean toward the direction of the King James Version, both for textual and practical reasons. Here in the immediate context, the phrase that follows, where he says, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, seems to, to qualify and explain what he was just saying. Having faithful children, namely, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And also in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, the requirement given there is that an overseer must manage his household well, How does he do this? Keeping his children under control with all dignity. There's no requirement in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that the overseer's children must be Christians. But what is required in 1 Timothy 3 is that the elder's children must be under control, that the elder must manage his children well. And such a requirement would coincide well with the understanding given by the King James translation that an elder's children must be faithful, understanding faithfulness in the sense that they're not to be accused of dissipation or rebellion. Dissipation is drunkenness, sensuality, immorality, and the like. The children of elders are not to behave that way. Nor must anyone be able to reasonably accuse them of rebellion against legitimate authorities in their lives. Now those are the textual reasons why I lean toward the King James translation. The practical reason is that if this were a requirement that All of an elder's children must be Christians. This would seem to rule out potential men who had young families. Now, I earnestly desire for all of my children to be true Christians. I desire for all of them to come to saving faith in Christ at a very young age. But with that said, I must say that at just under one month old, my youngest child has given me no positive indication that she is yet a Christian. And in that light, it it would seem to be a bar, if we were to understand this as saying that the children of elders must be Christians, this would seem to be a bar against elders who have young families. Certainly that bar exists nowhere else in Scripture, and I'm inclined to think for both textual and practical reasons that that bar does not exist here in this passage either. But what is required here, I think, is a proven faithfulness in the responsibilities which the Lord has given this man. Is a potential elder faithful in his marriage? Is a potential elder a faithful father? Does he keep his children under control? The home, as it were, is a proving ground for the potential elder. The man can't change his children's heart and cause them to be born again, for sure, but does he keep his children in submission and do so in a dignified way? If he can't do that, if he can't take care of the children that God has given him and exercise authority for good in their lives, then he's not going to do any better at exercising authority in the life of the church. Now, this is not to say absolutely that an elder must be married or that an elder must have children. 
For good or for bad, I became an elder before I was married or had children. And in such a case as that, the, whether the candidate is single or married, the, the principle laid down here applies broadly. How does this man take care of the responsibilities that he ha- already has? How does he take care of the things that the Lord has already put on his plate? Is this man put together? Does he use his time and his money well? Or does this man have a history of making a mess of things? Your responsibility at work, your responsibility at school, on down the list. If he is married, what does his marriage look like? Is he leading and loving his wife well or not so much? The words of our Lord from Luke 16.10 are fitting and applicable, that he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in very little things is unrighteous in much. Becoming an elder doesn't automatically flip a switch in someone's life. Characteristics that were not there before are not going to magically appear. And we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So we have this general requirement that an elder is to be above reproach. We have the requirements in the home in regard to his marriage and family. And then we have some other specifics spelled out in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 tells us what he is not to be, and verse 8 tells us what he is to be. So first, negatively, verse 7, he is not to be self-willed, which is to say he's not to be stubborn or arrogant. Now, obviously, an elder needs to be stubborn about doing what is right and about teaching what is right, even when he faces opposition for it. But this is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul here is speaking about a personal tendency in a man to do what he wants such that he will run roughshod over everybody else to get what he wants. A self-willed man is the man who says, it's my way or the highway. That's not the kind of man who can gently and lovingly shepherd the flock of God. Likewise, he must not be quick-tempered. He must not be inclined to anger. James reminds us in James 1, 19 and 20, but, to, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. He tells us that an elder is not to be addicted to wine. He doesn't require complete abstinence from alcohol, but as a man entrusted with authority in the church, the same warning should be extended to him, which was extended to Lemuel by his mother in Proverbs 31, verses 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. The abuse of alcohol is a sin in itself, and it also paves the way toward other sins. Likewise, an overseer is not to be pugnacious. What does it mean to be pugnacious? English Standard Version translated the word as violent. It's not quite as fun to say as pugnacious, is it? King James Version translated it as striker. Someone who is pugnacious is quarrelsome, belligerent, combative. In short, a bully. If you have a pugnacious man as an elder, then you'd have a bully in the pulpit, a bully in the business meeting, a bully in the counseling session, someone who speaks sharply in giving reproof and in offering admonitions, and that to the detriment of weak believers. Suffice it to say, this is not good for anyone involved, even the elder himself. Likewise, he is not to be fond of sordid gain, or as King James translated it, filthy lucre. This means that he's not to be fond of dishonest means of gain 
or fond or in or either be greedy for money. A man who loves money is caught up in idolatry. And this applies equally whether the money is acquired by just means or by unjust means. You can be wickedly greedy with honest gain, or you can be wickedly greedy with dishonest gain. And this has no place in the life of any Christian, especially not in the life of an overseer. Because instead of seeking the good of souls and the glory of Christ and using what he has for the good of others, a man who is fond of sordid gain is concerned simply about using everything as a stepping stone to watch his own fortunes grow. A man whose heart is in such a place has no business caring for souls because ultimately in his heart he does not care for souls. He cares for money. Such a man does not even care for the Lord. Paul put it rather starkly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, when he said, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then Paul shifts in verse 8 from what an elder must not be to tell us what an elder must be. He must be hospitable. And this would have been especially an important characteristic for an overseer in the first century. There were not nearly so many accommodations for travelers in the ancient world as there are now, and it's likely that many of the ones that were in existence then would have been establishments of questionable reputation. Christians who were traveling for the purposes of ministry or due to persecution or other reasons would have stood in need of someone who could take them in for the night and could provide them with a meal while they were in transit to somewhere else. And you see some hints of this culture of hospitality in the book's of 2nd and 3rd John. 2nd John the Apostle warns the church to whom he is writing against taking in to their homes these false and heretical teachers or supporting them in any way. And so he says in 2nd John 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, do not give him a greeting. For that for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now this might sound a little bit extreme at first, but If you put this in our context, a rough equivalent might be like giving room and board to the Mormon missionaries while they're in town spreading false teaching. And so, on the one hand, John warns against extending this kind of hospitality. But then, on the other hand, in the book of 2 John, we find him encouraging a man named Gaius in his hospitality. And... He tells Gaius in 3 John verses 5 and 6 that he was acting faithfully in whatever he accomplished for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified of your love to the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. And so there's this, there's this culture of hospitality in the, the early church. Obviously, that's a, that's a bit of a different culture than ours. We have lots of good hotels and things like that in our day, but nevertheless... An overseer must still be hospitable. He must be one who's willing to reach out to other Christians that he doesn't know so well and love to help them and encourage them and even use his own material goods to do so. Now, with our church being in the hotel district here in an area where a lot of people come for a short period of time either to to work or for some training, we have a unique opportunity to extend Christian hospitality to others who come to this area briefly for work. 
We can make people in such a situation feel welcome by making special effort to, to talk to them after the service or in a time when there's no pandemic, having them over to our home for a meal or, or something along those lines. And certainly elders must be leading the way in this hospitality, but hospitality is something for all Christians, as we find in Hebrews 13 too. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I've mentioned uh, this story before, but uh, while I was a seminary student, I was young, single, and I had a week off from work, and I traveled to uh, to England, to Scotland, for, uh, for just a short period of a week. And on a Sunday morning, I went to church in, in London, and after the service, I was, I was getting ready to, to go on my way, and a, uh, a woman in the church said, you'll, you'll go to our house for dinner today. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And, and so I went, went to their home and spent, uh, spent the afternoon with, uh, with she and her husband, and they had uh, two, two grown children, and there was another young woman from the church who was spending the afternoon with them, and it was uh, just a random, hospitable act of a Christian and um, I, was, uh, I was working for, for UPS at the time, and they knew that I was, was training for, for ministry. And the woman said to me, oh, every time we see a UPS truck, we'll pray for you. And, and, and so this is, this is Christian hospitality at its best. I will never forget that. As long as my mind is functioning well, I'll always remember that kind act of hospitality. Similarly, we, f- we find in the text that elders are to be those who love what is good. They are to be lovers of strangers and their hospitality. They're to be lovers of what is good. They are to love those who love what God loves, who regard as good what God tells us in his word is good. And this both requires and is evidence of a heart that's been changed by the Holy Spirit. Because naturally, we love sin and wickedness. All true believers have their hearts changed by the Lord such that now we begin to hate sin and wickedness and to love righteousness. And this love for good must be especially present in those who serve as elders. If the elders are not consistently lovers of what is good, then they're not going to be urging the love of what is good on the church in their teaching, and they're not going to be exemplifying in their lives this love for what is good. If a man does not love what is good, he's not fit to be an elder. And if someone doesn't consistently, well, let's put it this way, if someone consistently does not love what is good, we may well call into question whether their heart has actually been changed by the Holy Spirit, whether they are Christians or not. Likewise, elders are supposed to be sensible. This word sensible conveys a sense of soundness of mind, reasonable, prudent, and so on. We live in a messy and complicated world. And if someone is going to be an effective leader for the church, he has to have wisdom and prudence in going about that task. Not everything is written out in a manual for if this, do this in life. You know that as Christians living in the world, it certainly applies to life in the church as well. An elder has to be able to evaluate the situation of the church, the situation of the world, the situation of individual peoples, be they church members, visitors, or outsiders. And then on the basis of those evaluations, has to be able to do his best by the grace of God to teach, to counsel, to reprove, and so on. You don't want someone in that position who's going to be reckless and foolish and come off half-cocked. An elder 
also must be just in the sense of being upright, being righteous. He must be committed to living a just and righteous life. This includes being just and fair in his dealings with others, and it extends even to his entire obedience of all that God requires of us. He's to be devout, we're told. In other words, to be pious or holy. He's to be a man who lives in the fear of God and lives a life of complete devotion to the Lord. Likewise, he's to be self-controlled. Other people or circumstances of the day or the spirit of the age must not be pulling the strings of an elder and making him move accordingly. An elder can't be impulsive. He must be self-controlled. This, after all, is one of the fruits of the Spirit, and it ought to be present in the lives of all Christians, particularly in elders. Then we come to verse 9, which regards the potential elder's grasp of God's Word and his ability to teach it positively and to stand against those who would corrupt it. Paul says that an elder must be such a man as holds fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. An elder must be someone who has received the pure treasure of the gospel himself, and he must be willing to hang on to it, to preserve it, to guard it, to defend it. He must hold on to this faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, this teaching that is in accord with the apostolic message, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And he must hold on to this faithful message. He must hold it fast. And the very manner that Paul gives here, the very manner in which he speaks, the manner of his instruction implies that there are going to be times and there are going to be forces at work in the world to try to take this faithful word out of one's hand and out of one's mouth. And indeed, there are forces at work to do that very thing. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always on the prowl to accomplish this very thing, to take the Word of God away from us. If not, take it away entirely, at least to effectively twist it. And if the ones entrusted with safeguarding the instruction in the church fail in their vigilance, if they fail to hold fast the faithful Word, which is in accordance with the teaching, then as the old expression goes, Katie, bar the door, because... The door needs to be barred because when the faithful word is not held fast by the elders, then there's going to be an onslaught of error seeking to enter the church like a flood. And indeed, this very thing seems to be happening today in various ways. The various ideologies of the world are coming into the church universal, and part of the reason is because elders in various places have not been doing their job of holding fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching. They've not been faithful in exhorting in sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict. Now, of course, this is nothing new. It's not as if elders throughout the history of the church have always done a good job of holding fast the faithful word, and it's only in the last mm, five or ten years that they've kind of loosened their grasp and the dam finally broke. That's not the case at all. There has always been false teaching in the life of the church. Our brother Jamie has been preaching to us on Sunday nights from the book of Jude, and the book of Jude deals with that very thing, that there were those who came into the church unawares and brought in uh, destructive teaching with them. But just because this is not a new problem doesn't mean that we should just shrug our shoulders and dismiss it. Not at all. As Christians, we must be watchful and hold fast to the faithful word. This applies of course, to all Christians, but especially to elders. And so, just to 
speak specifically, or at least broadly in some cases, what are some of these ways in which error is coming into the church? Well, you see, in some corners of what we might call the evangelical world, you see a a softening in regard to the stances on sin, in particular the sin of homosexuality. Now, by all means, we must understand that people who sin in that way are real people, made in the image of God, with real souls, but they have souls that are in bondage to sin. The Word of God calls us to love them, but loving them does not mean that we coddle their sin or that we soft-pedal it any more than we would soft-pedal any other sin. Adultery, murder, the abuse of children, or theft, we are called to love all kinds of sinners. But the way to love them is not to downplay their sin and act as if this is, this is no big deal. The way to love sinners is to proclaim the fullness of God's word to them, both the law and the gospel. We hold fast the, the twin pillars of Romans 1.18 and Romans 3.21 and 22. Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We hold out the law of God and we show them that God's righteous requirement in the law is perfect obedience, perfect holiness. We show them what God requires. We show them how far short they fall and how, as it is, they stand under the wrath of God. We don't stop there, though. We show them that other pillar, Romans 3, 21 and 22, that now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and also the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the way to love our neighbors. Show them the problem. They're under the wrath of God. Show them the solution, that they can be righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. He calls them to repent and to believe in him. Now, how else is error coming into the church? Well, we see in some quarters the errors of the old social gospel coming back into vogue once again. One uh, historian defined the social gospel as an attempt to realize the heavenly state in human history through human endeavor, human cooperation with the divine. In other words, the social gospel is essentially an attempt to bring about heaven on earth, to realize the kingdom of God here and now. This was the direction in which the mainline denominations of uh, Protestant, uh, Protestantism went in the, the 20th century. And in going that direction and through a various combination of factors, they largely lost the gospel. If you go to the mainline denominations today, you're not going to hear much gospel. The men in those churches who were charged with holding fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching did not do it. And elders in the church today must be watching so that they hold fast the faithful word and keep the main thing the main thing. In other words, keep the church on mission. Let there be no mission drift. Now let's be clear. It is certainly good to do good to others here in this world. The social gospel was big on doing good to others here in this world. And we as Christians should be all about that. James tells us, James 1.27, that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And likewise, John asks that rhetorical question in 1 John 3.17, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The point is, we should be concerned with the temporal, earthly welfare of others. 
The early church did a great job of taking care of its own. Just think of those contributions that were taken for the poor believers in Jerusalem on more than one occasion during the apostolic age. These collections were taken from Gentile churches. They sent money to Jerusalem to care for poor believers there. They helped one another in temporal manners. But this benevolence and earthly charity, as good and wonderful as it is, is not the main thing to which the church is called. The church as the church is the assembly of saints in which the gospel is rightly preached, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are administered. The gospel is not an announcement telling us or others of how we can have our best lives now. The gospel in its essence is not a plan for social reform. It is an announcement that God has sent his son into the world to die on the cross so that men and women might be reconciled to God. And certainly then, as those reconciled to God, we are to seek to do good to those around us, as we find in Galatians, that we're to do good as we have opportunity to all people, especially to the household of faith. And we should be doing this, seeking justice, seeking mercy. We're to be the people who care for the unborn, the people who care for widows and orphans in their distress, people who care for the homeless in wise and prudent ways, and so on. But these derivative implications of the good news are not the good news itself. And it's important to keep everything in perspective and to keep everything in its proper proportion. It's very important to keep everything in its proper lane. If things switch lanes, so to speak, such that what becomes of prime importance in the life of the church are things that are merely of temporal, earthly significance, and the message of salvation ends up in the back seat, something has gone seriously wrong. Our Lord Jesus Christ helps us in distinguishing things that differ. And so he says, Matthew 6, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom. His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He tells us where the priority is supposed to be. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first God's righteousness. This is the priority. Elsewhere, he says, what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Again, Christ helps us in distinguishing things which differ. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. And elders in the church must hold fast the faithful word so as to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. About the year 180 or so, a man named Irenaeus, who was a bishop in what we would now know as southern France, wrote a little work that has been called The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. And this work is essentially a long letter to one of his Christian friends named Marcianus. And in this letter, what Irenaeus does is he runs through salvation history as found in the Old Testament and seeks to show how the various Prophecies of the Old Testament point ahead to Christ and are fulfilled in him. He discusses the incarnation, the death and resurrection, and ascension of Christ. He discusses being justified by faith and not by the law, even as Abraham believed and was justified. Near the end of the letter, he says this. He says, This, beloved, is the preaching of the truth. And this is the manner of our redemption. And this is the life of faith which the prophets proclaimed and Christ established and the apostles delivered and the church in all the world hands on to her children. That's a rather striking phrase. He says, this, beloved, is the preaching of the truth. This is the manner of our redemption. This is the way of life. 
which the prophets proclaimed, Christ established, the apostles delivered, and the church and all the world hands down to her children. This is the gospel that he's talking about. And this is the message that we must hold fast to in its pristine purity. And let's always seek, therefore, both as individual Christians and collectively as a church, to maintain this preaching of the truth, this manner of our redemption established by the death and resurrection of Christ, and maintain it as of first importance, so that we may hand on this glorious gospel to those who come after us, and that we may hand it on unimpaired. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. Lord, we pray that you would, that you would help us. Lord, I pray for Gemini, that we would be faithful as elders, that we would seek to embody these characteristics by your grace. I pray for Jamie as he's an elder in training. Lord, that you would help him, that he also would embody these characteristics. Lord, I pray for all of us, that we would all hold fast the faithful word. We would all live godly lives and seek to honor you faithfully according to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.